0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. When the city of London was in need of a bit of a redesign, after all, the place had burned down in 1666, well, in steps a fellow named Christopher Wren, now a famous architect. He came to do the job of redesigning that place, William Penn helped lay out Philadelphia. But centuries before either either of these two, a certain emperor by the name of Constantine put his mind to what a polis or a city could be, and that resulted in our compound word, Constantinople. Urban design is really big business, both in scope and in cost, so there are going to be naturally more dreamers about city design than fulfillers. Frank Lloyd Wright dreamed up a concept that he called Broadacre. Broadacre was never more than a scheme on paper. Walt Disney actually had his experimental prototype community of Tomorrow, and maybe just maybe Walt Disney World in Florida bears a little little bit of a resemblance to that figment of a grand new futuristic city. All of this brings me to Henry Ford and Thomas Edison. It is said that when Edison was in retirement and using a wheelchair to get around, Henry Ford procured his own wheelchair just so the two of them as neighbors could have races. And maybe in those wheelchairs, as they spent time together, maybe they occasionally reminisced about a dream city that each of them had a bit of a hand in. It was supposed to be in a place called Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Was this city all a pipe dream? How far did it actually go? And was Muscle Shoals even a sound urban concept at all, given the great innovative thinkers and tinkerers behind it, Ford and Edison? Here to tell us the story of the futuristic city called Electric City, that might have been but never really was, is science writer Thomas Hager. Hager has a voracious appetite to understand how we humans think about all kinds of science-related things from medicine and clean energy to climate change and the future of food his new book is titled electric city the lost history of ford and edison's american utopia he's on the line with us now thomas hager welcome to constant wonder
1: hello glad to be here
0: so this place never really happened
1: well it did happen and it that's all that's the long story of the book is how it finally did happen um but it happened in a different form than ford and edison had originally dreamed it's a a sort of a long story set in the 1920s that involves uh, politics and big money and uh, runs for president and all kinds of stuff got tangled up in this plan for a gigantic new city that was going to revitalize the south
0: Well, you know, for all of the politics and for all of the machinations of who has the power to say what gets to be done, uh, let's just talk a little bit about why Henry Ford would have gotten involved in this in the first place. Was this kind of a a pure and innocent notion that uh, I'm going to make a better city than anybody's ever made before?
1: Well, that was part of it. Henry Ford was a very interesting fellow. I didn't really realize until I got into this book just what an odd and unusual character Henry Ford was. Uh, I researched him for this book and really learned about him for the first time. And the more I found out about him, the more fascinated I became. He's a true American oddball, a very unusual personality, relatively untrained and yet extraordinarily successful. He was the richest man in the world uh, in his day. And at the time he was thinking about this new city, building this enormous new experiment in living, he was at the peak of his power. He had made the Model T. He had all the money he would ever need in the world. And now he was casting his eye toward doing something for the nation that he loved. He loved the United States of America, and he wanted to create a new way of living that would show Americans the path to the future.
0: Well, this is kind of heady stuff. I mean, he's got to be kind of cocksure to think that he's got what it takes to, you know, fix the, the problem of, of urban design and, and, and get it right, finally, yeah. you know?
1: Well, I think he was trying to make up for what he saw as mistakes that had been made in his own past and in, in America's industrial past. This is the 1920s. America had gone through the Industrial Revolution, and we had... Factories everywhere. Big cities were growing really rapidly after World War One, and uh, along with big city growth and factories was pollution, slums, labor problems, uh, vice in big cities, police issues. All these negatives that come with fast urban growth were happening in the United States. Ford had set that off in Detroit. He, his factories were fueling the the very fast growth of Detroit at that time, and along with it, all of the dirt and poverty and problems that went with that. He wanted to redo it. He, He hadn't paid attention to the city that his factories were in. But now, at this point in his life, later in his life, as he thought about how to create a new America, he really wanted to design a new way for his workers to live, And a way that would get them out of the cities, that would get them out of the smoke and pollution and and the crime and the temptations of big cities, and would put them out in an area that was more like the area he grew up in. Henry Ford grew up as a farm boy in Michigan, and he loved it. He didn't want to be a farm boy, but he really loved rural life. He he loved the values of small-town America. He wanted to recreate that, but recreate it for an enormous city of factories. And this was a huge challenge. It was really an enormous urban planning challenge. Henry Ford was a brilliant guy, though. He actually met the challenge.
0: So we're going to talk about how he met the challenge, and we're going to talk about Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The big question for me is why there? We're going to get to that. But conceptually, before we talk about that specific place, what... uh, What did he think he could do to change culture? I mean, this is more than just the design of infrastructure. This is going at society and and culture, too.
1: Yes. Yes. He was extraordinarily concerned with his workers. Um, Henry Ford was, you know, he was a, a very wealthy man and an industrialist. But he was an industrialist who really wanted his workers' lives to be better he instituted a higher wage than almost anybody in the united states was paying for his workers because he understood that well-paid workers would tend to reinvest their income in their communities and build their communities he recognized that if, with little extra money they could afford for instance to buy a car like a model t it would it would fuel this whole virtuous cycle of production and consumption in america um, he was one of the first really to stop uh, putting his boot heel on workers and instead reward them for their loyalty and work. And he had a great workforce. They loved him for the most part. Um, he never had labor problems, at least in the 1920s, uh, to any significant degree. And he wanted to reward his workers with a lifestyle that he thought was healthier for them. So he was going to move basically he was going to create a Detroit of the South along the Tennessee River in this wide open area uh, in the middle of of America. He was going to take this enormous swath of the United States and turn it into a huge uh, Ford factory town.
0: Now, you call your book Electric City. Was that actually his name for the place?
1: No. He um, uh, called the area what the people in the area called it, which was Muscle Shoals, Muscle Shoals is an area on the Tennessee River where the river is very shallow, and um, Muscle Shoals was the name of the development itself. Electric City is our name for his approach to that uh, area. What he wanted to do was to dam the river and create the biggest power plant, electrical power plant, that had ever been seen on Earth. He wanted to generate more electricity than humans had ever generated, and he was going to use that electricity to power his factories. Henry Ford hated coal pollution. He hated the smoke that came out of of smokestacks of coal plants, and he wanted to replace that with electricity. That was where he hooked up with uh, Thomas Edison, the, uh, the, the whiz kid of electricity in America at that time. And Ford and Edison together were going to recreate the industrial landscape based on clean, renewable electricity rather than coal.
0: So it starts with Ford, and then he enlists Edison to the concept.
1: That's correct. Edison was at the end of his career in the 1920s. Edison had already uh, discovered the incandescent lamp. He had discovered the phonograph. He he was building uh, electric uh, systems for cities. And He was uh, getting to be an elderly man. He was big friends with Henry Ford, though, as you noted in your introduction. And the two of them put their heads together as Ford was dreaming of his uh, utopian city. They put their heads together, and they came up with this idea for powering it with electricity.
0: Well, you know, I want to be really benevolent, and I want to be uh, upbeat about this, but as soon as you say the word utopia, the cynic in me kicks in, you know? And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just wondering, do you see any hubris here? It's just so, it's kind of a stock story that people of great means think they're going to have answers for all the rest of us.
1: Yes. And Henry Ford was was enormously self-confident. He was a man who, who never doubted himself as far as I could see, and um, extending his powers into urban planning and creating new societies and that kind of stuff was sort of a natural part of his tangent. He had to have a lot of hubris in order to you know, invent the assembly line and, and mass-produce Model Ts and reshape the manufacturing of automobiles and everything that came with that. He was responsible for that, and he just dove in and did it. He, he, was, in, he was very self-confident. So he didn't have any doubts about his plans for uh, reshaping cities. He just really saw this, I think, as a new way of engineering uh, better products for America. He wanted to create the most, uh, the most affordable, the most reliable, the best products that he could. It was true for his cars in the 1920s, and it was true for this plan for his city, too. He was going to make America both efficient and um, make it a, a sort of a, a spiritual uh, match for what he saw as the American spirit. It's, it's very, uh, when you dig into it and you find out what he thought America should be, it was really the old America of almost colonial times. It was these small towns uh, built around a village green, you know, with a church at one end. It's kind of a you know, like a fantasy version of what America uh, was. That was what he believed America could be. And he really designed his new city around the idea of small town centers around village greens, sort of, with small commercial centers linked to one another by roads into this megalopolis. He was going to, in the end, have a city ten times the size of Manhattan. He was, in the end, going to employ a million workers but each of them would live essentially in a small town the same way he had grown up in a small town. That was his vision of
0: America. Yeah, he's trying to kind of split the difference. I mean, he wants to have the factories. He wants yeah. to have the engines of prosperity, as it's seen in the post-industrial revolution era. And, and yet he wants somehow, and I'm going to be a cynic here, he wants kind of cosmetically to make it look like the old farmland. Well, it is, yes,
1: and it's true. It, it is cosmetically... Um, reminiscent of, of the towns of his youth, but it's also remarkably very forward-looking and, and really groundbreaking in terms of the overall urban design. What he was envisioning, and this is in the 1920s when you know we had these big uh, urban areas being built up at that time, what he was envisioning, in my view, was sort of something much like the suburbs that came in after World War II. So 30 years later. 30 years after he was dreaming up his city, many of the ideas that he wanted to put into place actually happened. But they happened in the form of interstate highways and in uh, suburban uh, developments around big cities which were built around green, leafy streets with small commercial centers and of um, massive use of the automobile. That was also part of his dream was that everybody would drive a car. And so, he, yeah, he had actually... Um, both looked backward to the past and looked forward to the future.
0: So he hates coal, but he's okay with gasoline.
1: (laughs) He is very okay with gasoline. (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, he invented the, he invented the efficient gasoline engine. Yeah, he was he was sold on gasoline.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so it kind of is though he's moving a little bit in the Levittown direction, the the big suburban uh, yeah. tracts.
1: You can see you can see echoes of Levittown. I mean, well, Levittown is an echo of his urban planning. His, um, you know, considering he had no training in this area whatsoever. What he and his engineers came up with as basic design ideas became very influential in the next generation of urban planners, people like Lewis Mumford, and you mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright, who looked at Ford's ideas and were enormously impressed with this idea of a ribbon city of small centers linked by highways. That became the model for a lot of urban thinking in the middle part of the 20th century. But again, Ford was years ahead of his time.
0: Well, we're going to get into the actual attempt to execute this grand scheme and how that came about and why it involved the president of the United States and the scandal or near scandal that ensued. We're going to do it after a short break here on Constant Wonder. We are visiting with Thomas Hager. He's author of Electric City, The Lost History of Ford and Edison's American Utopia. Stay with us. Thanks for joining with me for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. We're talking about city planning and not just generally. We're talking very specifically about a place called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and the grand scheme of Henry Ford to redesign the place and to establish a new, futuristic, functional, socially wise, culturally productive kind of a place. And did he pull it off? Not quite. And the whole story is told by Thomas Hager in his book, his new book, Electric City, The Lost History of Ford and Edison's American Utopia. Uh, we've already kind of grappled a little bit with the utopian notions, the conceptual uh, philosophical idea of why, why Ford was doing this in the first place. Let's put some uh, – let, we're going to let the rubber hit the road now. That's the, the automotive metaphor for you with Henry Ford. Uh, how does he try to make this happen and who are the main players? You've got you to gotta convince a few people.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a, a, an enormous task. He, I don't think he realized what he was getting into when he first came up with the idea. Uh, but it happened like this. World War I uh, had just uh, ended in 1918, and the United States, uh, at the end of the war, was left with a bunch of projects that had, had been started by the government to build military preparedness. You know, we were, we were making munitions, and we were making uh, gunpowder. We were making all kinds of stuff for the war and had thrown a lot of government money into it. Well, when the war ended, there was no need for any of these factories, you know, gunpowder factories, munitions factories, and so on. Um, and uh, one thing the government had done, one of the biggest projects of the war, had been to build uh, factories for making the components for gunpowder, uh, these, these chemicals called nitrates. They built these enormous nitrate factories along the Tennessee River in Alabama, you know, uh, for, for the war effort. Well, the war ended, and, and we're left with these enormous factories uh, that were rotting, you know, basically turning into rust. Um, Henry Ford uh, looked at the end of the war at that project, at these, at these factories that had been built, never used, and were... Um, basically white elephants that were going nowhere. And he thought, well, I could use those factories as the basis for uh, building a new, this new kind of city that I want to build. I'll center it around these factories. And, and the government was building an electrical dam to power the factories in the same place at Muscle Shoals, Alabama. He looked at that and said, well, there's, there's an enormous investment the government made here. I can use that and save the government's investment." And create this new city around it. So he had an opportunity uh, right then at the beginning of the 1920s to do something extraordinary by using the investment the government had made already in the area. Well, he made a bid for the factories. The government wanted to get rid of all the old investments. They wanted to sell off the factories, and it put it. It basically the government put those factories out for bid. Ford bid on it. He was the only serious bidder. the factories and the news got out that Ford whose name was magic at that time Ford was as I mentioned the richest man in the world he was an American wizard everybody loved Henry Ford the news that he was thinking about coming to Alabama the most poverty stricken part of the United States one of the most developmentally um, I, I I don't want to use the word crippled but it was It was underdeveloped. It was an old part of the country, the Tennessee River in northern Alabama, that was basically eroded farmland. People were desperately poor. When they heard Henry Ford was coming, the entire region rose up in celebration. They couldn't believe that this wonderful industrialist was going to come pump money into their area. That kicked off basically a decade's worth of back-and-forth politicking over Henry Ford's bid. And it it involved the most attention that Congress paid to any issue during the 1920s was paid to Muscle Shoals and Henry Ford's bid for Muscle Shoals. It was this enormous political battle uh, that raged for 10 years. And uh, the interesting thing to me was that in the middle of it, Henry Ford decided that he might want to run for president.
0: Oh, okay, so he's making a bid, but if this is going to drag on for a decade, who were the naysayers who were getting in his way?
1: Well, he um, had his critics as well, especially in Congress. Henry Ford, because of his personal wealth and power, um, was a political figure. He, you know, as like any wealthy uh, industrialist, he had a, a political role that he played in addition to his uh, industrial role. So he, he was not unknown to politicians some of whom worried about his tendency toward autocracy. Henry Ford was a one-man show. Henry Ford wanted to run his company by himself. He didn't want a board of directors. He didn't want a board of advisors. Henry Ford wanted to make all the decisions himself. He was a uh, uh, really, really uh, uh, self-driven and very, as I mentioned, very self-confident man. And he didn't want anybody telling him what to do. Well, that rubbed some politicians the wrong way. So he had enemies. Um, at the same time, he had very strong supporters in certain parts of the country. The book explains all the ins and outs of who was supporting Ford's bid and who was against it. But in the end, it was one man and one man alone who really stopped Henry Ford. And that man's name was George Norris. I'm happy to introduce some of your listeners to the name of George Norris, a great unsung American hero, I think uh, a really important figure in American history, a senator from Nebraska. Uh, senator George Norris was a uh, – what was George Norris? He was a, an independent-minded Nebraskan. He was a guy who, uh, like Henry Ford, was very self-confident and didn't allow anybody to tell him what to do, and, include, and that included Henry Ford. George Norris was an old uh, prairie-style populist. He, was, he came out of a political tradition that was based on farmers, farmers' rights, and fighting big money interests, banks, railroads. George Norris was a fighter, and he looked at Henry Ford's bid, and he said, well, you know, Ford, he's trying to put one over on the government. He's, he's making this lowball bid for this enormous investment we made in these factories. The United States put all this money into these factories, and Henry Ford wants to lowball uh, a bid to take over those factories and then use it for his personal gain. And that's not the government's business. So Norris, the more he looked at it, the more he was against Ford. And he set himself for 10 years to stopping Henry Ford.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you think that's heroic? I, I mean, I, I, I kind of do too. You've, you're kind of persuasive here, and I've just heard about George Norris. He's already one of my personal heroes. Okay. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing: both of these men come from farming backgrounds. They yeah. come from rural backgrounds. Yeah, and share some of the same values, I would presume. They do, and and they they make a an interesting case study because they are parallel track boys.
1: They. They both grew up uh, relatively poor. They both grew up in farms. One uh, in, in uh, Ohio. Well, George Norris was born in Ohio, and then he moved to Nebraska later. Uh, in the, both in the Midwest. They're both Midwest farm boys. Um, they found different ways out of the farm existence. Neither one of them wanted to be a farmer, but they both really appreciated the, the lives that farmers led. Uh, So yes, they're they're an interesting parallel case, and they ended up pitted against each other for years and years and years, just tooth tooth and nail. It was uh, quite a battle that they fought politically. And um, by the end of the 1920s, after years and years of back-and-forth politicking, George Norris came up with an idea that was actually based on Ford's ideas there was a lot to like about Henry Ford's plan. You know, Henry Ford wanted to make use of abundant river water power, you know, these dams that he wanted to build on the Tennessee River. There was abundant water power down there, and Norris saw the value in that. He thought that the same power could be controlled by the United States government and could be used for the good of the people instead of lining the pockets of Henry Ford. So Norris took a lot of the parts of Ford's plan, but he rewrote them as a government plan, not a private plan. He stopped Henry Ford, and then he put his own plan into place.
0: So basically, the the issue here, the grand divide is between the public and private uh, uh, ventures, and to what extent should the federal government or any government then provide subvention for private business?
1: That was, yeah, it's the same question we face now.
0: We yeah. see it in so
1: many public issues, you know, so many issues now are based around that same central question. Is it better to leave it to private development or is it better to give it to public oversight and development? Yeah, but that's, That tension is central to a, the American experience, I think. So, you know, we see it over and over
0: so how does this land at the White House eventually? Is this where Ford says, I can go over Norris's head, he's only a senator?
1: Yeah. Yes. Ford um, politic at the highest levels. He was, uh, he was the kind of guy who could you know, make a quick appointment, walk into the Oval Office in the White House in the 1920s. He, any door was open to Henry Ford. And he, um, he thought he could talk his way into getting his deal accepted in Congress and in the White House. And he came very close, except the president, who was most likely, who looked likely to support him, died in office. Uh, That was President Harding uh, died in office. And his successor, his vice president at the time, was Calvin Coolidge. President Coolidge um, became president right in the middle of all this. And Coolidge was a, you know, his nickname was Silent Cal. Uh, Coolidge was a guy who held his cards close to his chest, And he could see the value in Henry Ford's bid, and he really was sympathetic to Ford's bid. But at the same time, he knew that it was a political hot potato to get into all of this stuff because opposition to Ford was building as time went on, thanks to Norris. So Coolidge decided not to get into it. And um, Henry Ford, at that same time, just as this was all happening, Henry Ford thought, well, the straightest line to me getting this deal that I want is for me to run for president. If I'm in the White House, I can make this happen.
0: Yeah, we've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so, uh, yeah. So does he actually do a bona fide uh, campaign? And he,
1: Henry Ford, as I mentioned, you know, was a very self-confident man. One thing that he didn't want to do was uh, be the kind of politician who'd go out and slap people on the back and kiss babies. That was not his style. What he wanted was for the public to demand that he run. He and, uh, and his um, really crack crew of, of public relations specialists in the Ford Motor Company um kept the pot boiling uh, for a Ford for President movement that would come up from the grassroots. Uh, Henry Ford clubs based around the Muscle Shoals bid, you know, based around this utopian city that he wanted to build, um, were springing up all over the country in the 1920s. Uh, People spontaneously were coming out for Henry Ford for President and starting clubs, uh, you know, dozens scores. more than 100 clubs in cities around the United States, spontaneously sprang up to support Ford for president. And they were going to demand that Ford become president. Um, this all came to a head in the uh, election in the middle of the 1920s for president when um, Calvin Coolidge was, was going to run for the first time. Uh, Ford, Ford's name was mentioned all over the place as a likely competitor uh, for Coolidge or a replacement for Coolidge. And it was only at the last minute, at the very last minute, as as delegates were lining up to decide who they wanted for president, it was only at the very last minute that Ford decided to drop out. There was a scandal associated with that decision. It surprised everybody. Ford took his name out of running, and there was some controversy over why that happened. But that's an old old political scandal that I described in the book.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, let's pull Thomas Edison back into this story. Uh, what's he doing, meanwhile?
1: Well, Edison got into this because his friend Henry Ford asked him to. And Edison went down with Ford to Muscle Shoals, to the site of these old factories and the dam. And he uh, took a look at it with Ford, uh, toured it, and said very positive things about the possibilities of an all-electric future. But Edison, was his mind was going other places at the time. He didn't really dedicate himself to this project the way Ford did. Ford talked him into going down sort of his window dressing in a way, because Edison was, like Ford, was revered in America at that time. He was the wizard of Menlo Park. He was the man who brought the electric light into people's lives and music into people's homes with his phonograph and so forth. And um, so he was a beloved figure. And having him and Ford together uh, in the middle of Alabama uh, would draw enormous crowds wherever they went. Ford knew that, and he used Edison to help draw those crowds. And Edison backed his plan. Um, but then Edison got off on sidetracks, He got very interested in the idea of creating a new kind of money uh, to replace the American currency that would be needed to fund uh, the building of this city. Um, Edison and Ford together came up with the idea of creating a new kind of energy dollars, they called it. Energy dollars were going to be a new kind of currency based on the electricity that was produced by the dams they were going to build. It was a scheme for uh, creating a new kind of money, and uh, it fell through. And when that fell through, uh, you know, the, the economics experts looked at Edison's ideas and thought they were foolish. When that fell through, Edison sort of
0: dropped out. Yeah. So is this the beginning of the end then? If, if Edison drops out and if Ford is no longer going to be president and if Norris seems to be holding forth to yep. prevent all of this, uh, does it sour for, for Henry Ford?
1: It, uh, it eventually does. And, and finally Ford drops his formal bid and goes on to do other things. He, you know, uh, Ford uh, couldn't stop thinking about making a better world what he ended up doing was creating his perfect town in, in sort of his own backyard. He created a park. A, it, essentially, it's a theme park in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, which uh, I advise people to visit if they ever get to Dearborn. Um, the Ford Museum is there, and next to it is this, is this theme park that is populated with houses, uh, historical houses, that Ford collected like other people might collect you know, souvenirs. He collected houses where famous people had been born, and he disassembled them, reassembled them in Dearborn, and he now has this beautiful theme park full of historical houses, a, a village green, with a church at one end, and a town pond with a gristmill on it. It is the perfect American town he dreamed of, but it exists as a theme park. So he, he went off in that direction, Uh, Edison dropped out, and what happened was George Norris was the last man standing. George Norris had his plan for a government-funded project to do what Ford wanted to do. He pushed that through uh, after years of struggle. He pushed it through Congress and got Congress to approve it after uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected in the Depression in 1932. Franklin Delano Roosevelt... Funded as part of his New Deal, this enormous development on the Tennessee River based around dams and, um, and using electricity to uh, power industries. Uh, they called that project the Tennessee Valley Authority. The Tennessee Valley Authority became the single biggest project of the New Deal. And it created not just one dam, but a string of, oh, I don't know, more than a dozen dams up and down the Tennessee River um, that controlled floods, uh, provided irrigation and uh, navigation aids and uh, recreational opportunities and helped turn that area from a really, really poverty-stricken area into a really lovely area of the country. Um, That Tennessee Valley Authority was an enormous effort. That came out of Ford's
0: dream. So he succeeded, but he didn't. And I I guess my lingering question is, are a lot of theme parks kind of salvage operations for dreams that never really quite got fleshed out? You'll you'll have
1: to ask Walt Disney.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you've spent some time, uh, Thomas Hager, pursuing this story of somebody proposing a futuristic city and going after it and having the means to do it and surely this is kind of a pattern that has happened before Ford and, and will happen after Ford and has maybe even happened in right now. What do you make of it? Is, is this a, a cautionary tale? Is this an upbeat story? I mean, where does this land in terms of all the risks and hazards of, of this kind of ambition?
1: Yeah. It, to me, it's, a, it's an American story, and it's neither you know, good nor bad. It, it's neither positive nor negative necessarily what it is is an illustration of that central tension that we talked about between private and public investment and private and public direction for development in in our country we have a very interesting and unusual approach toward large scale projects in the united states joe biden's plan right now to build this huge infrastructure you know the push through an infrastructure bill that would uh, pump enormous uh, amounts of public dollars into infrastructure deals. This is an echo of the same tension um, in which private interests are arguing that, you know, we'd be better off controlling the direction of these developments, and the public sphere is saying, no, we're better off. Well, that came to a head in the 1920s. We see America going through that decision-making process over and over and over again somehow the United States seems to find its way through. It's because both parts are necessary. It seems to me that both the public input and the private input are necessary. There's going to be a battle. Uh, There's going to be tension, and there's going to be struggle between those two interests. But in the end, that's a productive struggle. That's a struggle that makes projects better. That's my
0: final view. Thomas Hager, such a pleasure to have a chance to hear you tell this story. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much, and thanks for all the good questions.
0: Thomas Hager with us, a science writer, and uh, his his newest contribution to the literature is Electric City, the Lost History of Ford and Edison's American Utopia. Speaking of the city of the future, where do you suppose our children or their children are going to want to live? Well, statistically speaking, very high odds it's going to be in some kind of a city or maybe in the suburb of a city. And how are they going to get around? Will they spend hours locked up in traffic? Or will this city of the future be walkable for them? Future cities are actually being built right now by the planners of the present. And we're going to visit with one of them about his city dreams when we return to Constant Wonder. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining with us for all this city talk. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. You know, visionaries don't always get things right, even if they are brilliant, even if they are generational geniuses like Thomas Edison or Henry Ford. There are some fairly humble city planners that don't get a lot of fame and glory, and when they set out to design cities that are more livable for us, more walkable for us, more humane and green... Do we actually listen to them, and should we? Our next guest hopes that your answer is yes, because he's one of them. He is of the opinion, as he puts it, that the car is an optional instrument of freedom rather than a prosthetic device. He wants us to get out of our cars and onto our feet. His name is Jeff Speck, and he's a city planner. He's author of Walkable City and Walkable City Rules. Here's part of a conversation I had with him. It starts here with a new axiom for city planners when it comes to bus routes. Frequency is freedom. That's what the, the transportation planner, Jarrett
2: Walker, who taught me all this, uh, says. The most effective systems are taking spiderweb systems and systems which try to get people from, you know, every location to every destination without changing buses and turning them into simple like tic-tac-toe boards of frequent service with the expectation you're probably going probably to make one transfer. So that's the new, the new technique is like what they did in Houston is you, you, you put a bus line every mile or even half mile just going north, south, or east, west, and then you allow them to overlap, and you run them frequently. And that's uh, replacing a, a, an older system, which tried to get from everywhere to everywhere else without transfers.
0: My favorite word so far is frequently, and that's because I've spent a lot of my life waiting for a, a, a bus, a certain line to come, or a train, and it, if it comes through every half hour, that's not frequent in my book.
2: I've always said that if buses don't come every, I mean, 15 minutes at the at the at the least frequent. Then you need to have a schedule, right? And if you have to look at a schedule, that really limits your rider, your ridership, your potential riders. People want to be able to just show up and have that freedom to not be tied to a schedule. So it's that service every 10 minutes or so or more frequently that causes a system to really be, be first class and uh, particularly if you're doing transfers. Because if, if you're relying on a transfer in the middle of your, of your commute, you can't be sitting there for more than 5, 10 minutes.
0: Maybe you could explain how it is by, if we design and conceive these vehicles and their use better, it it makes walking uh, more enticing?
2: Well, I should say, uh, and it took me a while to learn this, but people are always talking about different modes of getting around, walking, biking, transit, and driving. Those are the four principal modes. And we like to compare them and talk about mode shift and mode split and all these different things. But it turns out, interestingly, that three of those modes support each other, that investments in walking uh, result in more biking and more cycling. Investments in cycling result in more biking. Sorry. Investments in walking result in more biking and more transit use. Investments in transit use result in more biking and more walking. Investments in walking, in, 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 you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a big happy investments, family. Investments in, driving, investments in driving, and that includes supporting Uber and Lyft, which have their virtues but um, uh, do not help cities. Um, invent, investments in driving undermine uh, walking, undermine biking, and undermine transit. So you have these three modes that support each other, and uh, this one mode that kind of supports itself. The the um, the caveat about Uber and Lyft is that fully a third of the rides uh, on Uber and Lyft, um, based on one study, uh, are coming from walking, cycling, and transit. And in a, a more recent study I just saw in, in a different city, it was two thirds of the rides were coming from these other uses. So um, the advent of Uber and Lyft in our cities has undermined public transit and and actually resulted in less walking, less biking. But I think you can see how the city that supports transit or biking or walking supports all three of those things because uh, when you invest in driving, you widen the streets, you narrow the sidewalks, you remove the street trees because they were in the way of making the streets wider. Um, you have parking everywhere, parking structures, making the streets boring, parking lots between the buildings and the streets, and all these other things that make an environment that you don't want to walk in.
0: Well, here's something that's quite random for you. Uh Stockholm, Sweden, you say in your book, has a congestion tax. A congestion tax. How does that work?
2: Yeah, so the, it's called congestion pricing. Uh, we like to call it decongestion pricing. <laughs> but um, the first one that I know of, of any significance, was in, in London. Uh, Stockholm has picked it up. And now I'd say a good dozen major cities around the U.S. have uh, congestion pricing in place. Essentially, um it's it's recognizing that for a a market to function properly the price needs to reflect the value what's the market the market is our roads if we want to have our roads not overly congested then the price you know the 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 the, in, in relationship between supply and demand the price needs to um needs to reflect the value which changes during the day and what they realized was in central london the value of letting people in was about, I think, $15 a day. And when they charged $15 a day for anyone to get into central London, and by the way, New York is, is about to experiment with this big time, finally, after trying for, for 15 years, they're, they're about to enact a uh, congestion pricing toll. Uh, when this happened, um, they made billions, first of all, they made billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Secondly, um, they invested that money As you need to do and as New York City plans to do in transit and in bike facilities and sidewalks and other things Um, but the combination of those two things resulted in um, biking increasing dramatically transit use increasing dramatically um, transit delays going away essentially you know riding the bus now became effective Um, and uh, uh, smog and asthma dropped considerably uh, in the center city, and basically, um, you know, there were a lot of people who opposed it, as you might imagine, uh, who afterward all came forward in the in, in the newspapers and said we we were wrong, and and the mayor Ken Livingstone got reelected um, based entirely on the success of the program. I don't know any city that's that's incorporated it that hasn't um, loved it, and it's basically not saying we're going to toll you randomly. It's saying we're gonna we're gonna toll these these highways or these access points to the city in a way that just gets the most people in and out of the city. And that's the remarkable thing. Because what's happening is if too many people try to use a road, then nobody's moving. So the road actually isn't performing its function. We want the road actually to handle as many cars as it can. And it does that when there aren't too many to keep any of them from moving.
0: Which is called gridlock, I think. (laughs) Pretty pretty (laughs) sure. Gridlock...
2: Gridlock was invented by uh, my friend Gridlock Sam Schwartz um, in New York City, and uh, it's, Gridlock specifically refers to almost when you have a, um, a pinwheel of cars blocking each other at intersections. And you actually have to get a crane in there to lift a car out oh. for it to start working again. <laughs> uh, you've probably seen—I've seen photos of that happening in Brazil. It's, it's, it's why they say don't block the box, right? Right. If you block the box, you can actually create in a four-block pattern or around one block, you can create a pinwheel in which no one can ever move again, and you need to lift people out with a crane. But um, uh, without without having to come up with a name for it, I think it's very clear to uh, to see that that when too many people try to use a road, actually it doesn't serve anybody.
0: So instead of a uh, congestion tax, you need to have like, uh, you got to do time or a hefty f- fine for gridlock. I'm getting off topic here. I, I want to go to this thing that we have around here. A lot of these, and this has to do with safety. We call them suicide lanes sometimes. It's yeah. it's the, the turn lane down the middle of a street. Maybe it's a four lane road, but you got the fifth one in the middle. You don't like those so much.
2: Well, actually there's, uh, there's, there's a reverse argument in a high. First of all, let's just look at crashes, death rates, that sort of thing. The suicide lane, as you describe it in a highway, in a high speed road where you actually have a lane in the middle that belongs to everybody um, that people use as a passing lane, people use as a turning lane. There's kind of an uncertainty as to when you're supposed to be in it and out of it in a high speed road. That is just clearly dangerous in terms of statistically How many crashes are occurring which is why it's called a suicide lane (laughs) there's a there's an alternative uh street configuration though that i am often recommending um, that's become kind of a standard it's called the great american road diet and it occurs um in cities where you have a four-lane road now now um a lot of our older cities not so much our newer cities but a lot of our older cities have a lot of streets that are four lanes and by four lanes i mean four lanes throughout and not an extra fifth lane, left turn lane at the intersection, which in modern cities is kind of standard, like in Florida or on streets in Salt Lake City or in, uh, you know, any, anywhere, anywhere newer, like Miami, uh, you'll find these that every street is built with left turn lanes at intersections, which is also a mistake uh, because it can cause too much speeding. But if you have a four lane road, you can turn it into a three lane road without reducing uh, capacity at all because four-lane roads are incredibly um, inefficient. They're also incredibly dangerous in the sense that, you know, you want to take a left-hand turn. The left-hand turn lane is also the speeding lane, right? It's also the fast lane. So chances are you're causing someone to jam on their brakes. When you take your left turn, one lane of traffic may stop for you, but the other one won't, and you get T-boned. Um, so in, in urban conditions, this isn't your kind of highway suicide lane, but in urban conditions, we find in many of our cities, like Boston or Washington, D.C. or Chicago, if you have a four-lane road and you turn the middle two lanes into a single lane, which is for left turns only, um, that saves a tremendous amount of lives in the, in the many roads that have been studied, um, and it does not reduce the capacity of the street. And then you've got an extra 10 to 12 feet that you can use for bike lanes or you could use for parallel parking or for something else. But I would distinguish that from a highway suicide lane.
0: I've got time for one more, and this comes out of Holland, I think. Uh, Naked streets. That's a term that most of us have not encountered before. What is a naked street?
2: (laughs) Well, when you think of Holland, it may conjure a different image. Uh, But what they mean by that is a street that has uh, fewer or no signs or markings in it. There is this concept called risk homeostasis that Malcolm Gladwell talked about uh, in an article he wrote, I think, before his famous books, um, about the space shuttle disaster, and how people basically adjust their risk to the level that they're comfortable with. And if you're if you're actually in a no-risk environment, you'll behave more riskily. Um, and so um, proof of that was when, for example, uh, poisoning deaths went up with the advent of childproof bottles, right? Or Similarly, um, in Sweden, when they went from driving on the right-hand side... No, when they went from driving on the left-hand side of the street to the right-hand side of the street, they flipped it, I believe, in 1978. And for a whole year and a half, traffic deaths went down because people were scared to death. They, didn't, they were afraid they were going to... They didn't know what they were doing, right? So the, the, the concept is that in, your, the, the environment influences your behavior. If your environment is unclear and you're not sure what lane that you're in, and you're not sure what speed you should be going, and um, if there aren't clear directives about how to use the roadway, uh, you will drive more slowly and more safely. A great example of that is one study in England found that when you remove the center line from a two-lane road, people's speeds drop by seven miles an hour on average. So just take that center line out on your typical two-lane road, and people are driving a lot slower because there's a fear that the cars coming towards them will hit them. As practiced in Europe, naked streets mean, you know, having intersections between small streets. They can't be too big. But having intersections with no signs, no stop signs, no anything. Um, I think if you were to do that in the U.S., um, you should probably put an always stop sign in or an always yield sign in just because we're so unused to it. uh, we'd We'd have to transition. But um, the, the traffic engineer Hans Monderman famously said, in his German accent, uh, "When people see a street as dangerous, everyone else wants to put something else in, and I ask, what can I remove?"
0: Jeff Speck is a city planner. He's author of Walkable City and Walkable City Rules. The name Lafayette is an illustrious one in American history because of a certain Frenchman by that name during the Revolution. But on Monday, we're going to get to know about another Lafayette, James Lafayette, an enslaved black man who offered his own contribution to the cause of the Continental Army by spying on the Red Coat. We're going to go to Colonial Williamsburg for that story. That's Monday on Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Our show is a production of BYU Radio.